Please uh, listen, if you would, to the Word of God as I read this morning words from the lips of Jesus from Matthew chapter 6. Jesus said this, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. Will you join me in prayer? Our Father, now we pray for the ministry of the Spirit and the Word to be combined in our hearts, that we might be transformed a little bit more into the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for your holy word. Speak to us now, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. And you can have a seat. Well, welcome, everybody. It's great to see you today. And uh, to our guests, and I know we have a number of you with us this morning, we say welcome to you also, and we're glad that, uh, that you're all here today. And we want to let you know that around here we believe that the Bible is God's holy word and that preaching and teaching and hearing and responding to the revealed truth of God's word is of paramount importance when believers come together to worship. We need to hear from God, amen? We need to hear from the Lord. And so today we get to sit once again at the feet of the greatest truth teacher of them all, Jesus Christ, the glorious Son of God, the one who had been with the Father in heaven and came to earth to reveal him to humanity. And so if you have a Bible, you can go to Matthew chapter 6. You can also pull the little study guide out of your worship folder, and uh, that way you can kind of track with us as we move along this morning. The section I just read is part of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount that we began looking into a long, long time ago, and we're still in it. And uh, when we started, we noted that Jesus was addressing a group of people who were steeped in religion, religious culture, from birth. The people in his audience that day had been completely immersed in religion, more specifically a religious system that required strict obedience to God's law. And there's not a problem with that, except that through the centuries they had reduced the law of God, to a list of man-made rules that only addressed human behavior. And so their rabbis taught that if you wanted to gain God's favor, if you wanted God to accept you, then you just needed to behave. Keep our list of rules, do the right things, stop doing the wrong things, and if you do that, you'll be one of us, and God will be pleased with your righteous life. That's what they taught. Now, I've taken to calling that approach to God the performance plan, and you've heard me talk about that before. Many people are still on this plan, even today. It's their plan of choice, and the motto of the performance plan is perform well, behave well, and God will accept you. Keep the rules, behave yourself, do the right thing, and you will earn God's favor, and you'll earn a spot in the kingdom of God. It's all about trying hard to be good and expecting God to see that and, as a result, approve of you. It's about seeking to earn God's favor as a wage, something that's deserved. But then Jesus came along, and as he was prone to do, he upset the apple cart, didn't he? (laughs) Turned that on its head. Especially in this sermon, he began to poke huge, gaping holes 
in the performance plan. And in chapter 5 of Matthew, when we walked through that, we basically saw Jesus saying three things. Number one, God's standards are higher than you think. Number two, obedience is required, but truly obeying God's law requires more than just right behavior. It requires right heart attitude, right motives. And then we saw Jesus saying, really, only I, Jesus, can fulfill the law, the law of God. Now, I've told you before that when I read the Sermon on the Mount, I look at it through a particular set of lenses, and I believe that Jesus' aim in this sermon was to cause the people that were listening to him in that day and all who would read this sermon down through the centuries to become dissatisfied with the plan that they were on so they would seek out another plan. Kind of like the cable guy who came to my door the other day trying to open my eyes to how frighteningly awful my current cable plan is so that I would sign up for his glorious plan. You see, Jesus knew that everybody on the performance plan would fall short of God's standards, everyone. He also knew that, knew that he had come to offer another plan, right? That we've been calling the grace plan, the grace plan. But before anyone would want that plan, they needed to see clearly how their current plan was doomed to fail them. And that's chapter 5 of Matthew. But now as we come to chapter 6, we see Jesus continuing to kind of undercut the performance plan, but now from a different angle. In chapter 5, he showed them how their ethical standards were too low, since they only addressed outer behavior and not the heart. But now here in chapter 6, he shows how their religious activities also fall short of God's true requirement, because once again, they had made it all about doing their religious duty while totally missing God's demand for a pure heart and loving motives. And so here's how Jesus went about it. First, he issued a warning. The warning contains a, a principle that we need to understand. Then he takes that principle and applies it to three areas of religious activity, giving, praying, and fasting. And so first, notice once again in verse 1, the warning. Beware. That's a warning word, isn't it? <laughs> Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to what? Be seen by them. You might want to circle that phrase. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So the principle is this, doing the right thing for the wrong reason is not the right thing with God. And we can get confused on this sometimes, but Jesus was very clear. Doing the right thing out of the wrong motives is actually not the right thing to God. And he uses an interesting word in here that sheds light on what, what he's getting at. Circle that phrase, in order to be seen. That phrase is translated from the Greek word theaomai, from which we get our word theater or theatrics. So you get the idea? Jesus is talking about people who are putting on a show, who are performing. They're acting righteous by doing religious things, but it's just that, an act. It's not genuine, it's not sincere, it's not real. And in the next verse, he's going to use the word hypocrite, which actually comes from the Greek word for actor. Someone who is performing in a play who would wear a mask to play a certain role. So same idea, right? Theatrics, play acting. And that word came to be used of any person who was pretending to be something other than what they really were. And so like he's been doing all throughout this sermon, Jesus is contrasting true righteousness with this 
hypocritical, theatrical religion. And here's the contrast. There's a little table there on your, on your outline. Hypocritical religion involves doing righteous activity in order to get noticed by people. It's acting. It's, it's pretending to be something that you're not. It's calculated for effect. It's for the acclaim of people. It's often announced with fanfare. Hey, look at me. Look what I'm doing. And it's rewarded with the praise of men and only the praise of men. But true righteousness, the genuine article, heartfelt righteousness, also involves righteous activity. But now it's to express love for God. It's not to get noticed by people. You see the difference? It's expressing, it's being who you are from a changed and transformed heart. It's flowing out of you. It's arising spontaneously in order to please the Father, not to gain His acceptance, but to please the one who has become our Father. These are deeds done discreetly and will be rewarded by the Father. As I said, Jesus is going to apply this principle of genuine heart righteousness to three areas, and we're just going to look at the first one today, and it's the area of giving. Giving. In verse 2, he said, Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be what? In secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Some of you just realize that right here is where we get a couple of common phrases that people often like to say, like, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, and don't toot your own horn. That comes from right here. And by the way, Bible college students have a field day with stuff like this. And I remember in my dorm back in Bible college, one year all the guys in our dorm were mocking the Pharisees tooting their own horn. So some guy would be walking down the hall, you know, he'd say, I'm getting ready now to go have my devotions. Or, you know, I'll be waking up at four o'clock tomorrow morning to pray for four hours. Or I'm getting ready to memorize all of the book of Isaiah. Bible college is kind of weird. Just a whole different culture, okay? It really is. But apparently the religious hypocrites of that day, Jesus' day, were putting on a show to get noticed and attract attention so that people would be impressed with their spirituality and regard them highly. So they were kind of like, look at me, look at me, see how spiritual I am. And apparently part of their act was making a big production of how generous they were. And so Jesus gives this kind of humorous analogy of pulling out a trumpet and uh, announcing with great fanfare what they were going to do. Now, I borrowed this from my friend here in the church, and I promise you I'm going to be a blessing to you today by not playing this trumpet, (laughs) because I have not played since 1971, and I guarantee you it would not go well. But um, just picture that scene in your mind for a moment. Here you have you know, wealthy religious Jews who had decided that uh, they were going to do something to get noticed. And so they would pick an appointed time of the day to head out into the marketplace when it was most crowded with people, taking with them a stash of their own money hidden in their own robes somewhere. And then at the appointed hour, 
they would announce a big giveaway by raising a trumpet to their lips and tooting out a loud sound, and all the people would come rushing to get in line, especially the poor people, so that they could partake of this and, and benefit from it. And all the while, these wealthy religious people would stand back and just kind of bask in the praises of the people who would look at them and say, wow, what godly people they must be. Now, that's kind of interesting, isn't it, to think about that. That may have been what was going on in that day. And Jesus pointed that out in order to make a point. And what was his point? Giving money to bless poor people is a good and commendable thing, but doing it in order to get noticed to be seen by people and to be highly regarded by them is not a good and commendable thing. Isn't that his point? Now, I imagine that some people would have heard Jesus teaching and say, well, now, wait a second, what's the problem, really? If poor people are being helped, then who cares what the motives of the giver are? Isn't the important thing that charity is being offered to needy people and they're being blessed? What's the big problem here? That's a fair question. I think we need to remember Jesus' purpose in giving this sermon. He's not giving a lecture on social action, on mercy ministry. He's exposing false religion because he doesn't want people to go to hell. That's what he's doing. And so in that context, he is saying that God has two big problems with people who give to the poor in such a way as to draw attention to themselves in order to impress others. First... What they're doing is they're turning love into a self-centered transaction. That's what they're doing, right? Even though they are being generous by giving their money away, they aren't truly loving the poor. They're using the poor to get something they want for themselves. Admiration, honor, respect, praise. They're not giving as a heartfelt expression of love. They're giving so that other people will be impressed with them and think highly of them. So it's a transaction. Even the language Jesus uses is financial language. They have received their reward in full. They are fully receded, is what he was saying. Turning love into a self-centered transaction. The second problem that God has with people who do this is that their motives reveal a failure to believe that ultimately God is the giver. God is the giver. They were looking for people to provide for them what only God has promised and is able to deliver. And we'll come back to that notion in a few moments. So in chapter 5, Jesus made the point that trying to impress God with our righteous behavior doesn't cut it with God. And now in chapter 6, he's saying trying to impress people with our behavior doesn't cut it with God. So it kind of begs the question, who are we supposed to be trying to impress with our good deeds? Or is it really not about impressing at all. I think to get to the core of this, we need to recognize there's a couple layers of truth here that need to be explored. There's the surface layer, and that's activity, behavior, conduct. But then there's this subsurface layer, which is the motives underneath the conduct, the hard attitude underneath it that's driving it. Since Jesus had the audacity to relate this to the subject of giving... Let's take a few moments to peel back some layers on that particular topic for a minute. 
Now, you probably know the Bible does talk a lot about God's call for his people to give generously to God's work. And that's, that's a behavior, right? That's, that's doing something. We saw examples of that in our last series in the book of Acts on the early church. Remember that? People being generous, giving away their resources to bless other people. The New Testament describes two kinds of giving by God's people. The first kind we could call structured, systematic giving. This would be the kind of giving we see described in 1 Corinthians 16, for example, where Paul instructed Christians to set aside a sum of money on the first day of the week, amount in proportion to their income, to give to meet the ongoing needs of, of God's family. In Galatians 6, 1 Timothy 5, we see Paul instructing churches to financially support their pastors and the work of the ministry that's going on there, again, through generous giving. So there is plenty of precedent all throughout the scriptures for God's people giving their resources in a structured, systematic way and doing this in order to support his work and his ministry and to do so gratefully, eagerly, and cheerfully for God loves a cheerful giver. So to do it as an expression of their love for Christ and gratefulness for his generosity. So that's structured, systematic giving. But the scriptures also talk about another kind of giving that we could call spirit-led or spirit-prompted spontaneous giving. Now, this is generosity that's prompted by the Holy Spirit when he opens our eyes to a particular need and moves in our hearts, prompting us to give to meet that need. This kind of need-based spontaneous giving is what Jesus had in view here in Matthew 6. This is the kind of giving that many of you are doing, for example, by supporting a little child over in Makono Village. And by the way, our team is getting ready to come back from there. They've had a, a wonderful time of ministry there. But over 300 children now in that village, and I've been there, are sponsored by a new lifer who is just generously giving an amount every month so that that child can go to school every day, their school fees are paid, they can have meals every day, and they can learn about Jesus through the ministry of Makono Community Church. And it's, it's a wonderful thing. And I don't know how you got into that. Maybe you saw a video presentation that we did here or heard us talking about it from the platform or maybe you know another new lifer who's doing that and expressed to you what a blessing it is to be able to to be involved in that and your heart was moved and you responded this is spontaneous giving this happens when you hear about a need that a particular family has and you just give to meet that need I heard about a small group that actually pooled their resources and gave over a thousand dollars to one of the families in the group that were in need this is you going about your business as usual, and all of a sudden you have this strong sense from God that he wants you to give an anonymous gift to someone, and you say, yes, Lord, even though you might not know what it's all about, and you give a gift to that individual. Spirit-prompted, spontaneous giving. Now, obviously, to flow in this stream of generosity and to live that way, it's going to require us to adjust our lifestyle to live below our level of income so that there's money that we have to give away, right? Make sense? <laughs> but um, when it comes to we who live here in the United States in the 21st century, that's kind of the rub, isn't it? Because if we listen to our culture, the message we get is that real happiness is to be found in living as luxuriously as we possibly can, living right at our level of income or maybe even a little bit beyond it. 
Instead of giving to impress people, what many people are doing is spending to impress people. Or as one man said, too many of us are spending money we don't have to buy things we don't need to impress people that we really don't even like. And there's some truth in that, isn't there? You know, if we're living that way because we bought into the cultural message, not only are we going to be stressed out all the time, but we're going to find that we don't have discretionary income to give away on a moment's notice when we're prompted by the Holy Spirit to do so. Thankfully, I I know an increasing number of people who have rejected the cultural message as a false message, and they have prioritized paying off debt and downsizing their lifestyle so as to be free to be able to joyfully give away. There are people in this church family who have made a strategic, spirit-prompted decision to stop going further into debt, to pay off their current debt, to buy a less expensive car, some even to sell their large home for a smaller one with a smaller mortgage, all in an effort to be freed up financially to invest more and more of their resources in things that really matter. And that brings me to this next layer of truth that's beneath the surface that we see here because what Jesus is doing as he always does is he's peeling back the exterior layers to get to the core. He's always doing that, right? Get to the heart of the matter. Like what's underneath all of this activity? He always gets to the why of what we do. And obviously Jesus here is advocating giving in secret. Giving without fanfare. And he's got people's motives in view, doesn't he? Evidently, he's a proponent of giving that is so purely motivated that you don't really even want other people to know what you're giving or what you're doing. Using a figure of speech, he says, give in such a way that your left hand doesn't even know what your right hand is doing. So it can't like point out to other people what all the good things you're doing over here. In effect, saying, give in such a way that not only do, do other people not know what you're doing, but the other side of you doesn't even know what you're doing. So he does talk about behavior, giving, that's something we do, but then he digs deeper and he talks about how giving is done and what drives people to give the way that they do. And I need you to follow me on this because we've got to go deeper to get it. So Jesus' whole point throughout this sermon has been this, God's standards go deeper than you think. You thought it was all about behavior and acting the right way, but God goes for the heart It matters to God why you obey him. True righteousness goes beneath behavior to the heart that produces the behavior. And so here, Jesus points out a heart motivation that is tainted. Do you see it? These people were giving to be what? Seen by people. Now, you knew I was going to get to the gospel, right? I am learning that the gospel relates to every area of our lives. And I believe that Jesus is here describing the hard attitude of people whose heart has not yet been gripped by the gospel. The reason I think that is because he speaks of them as doing what they do in order to get noticed by people. That's what's driving their actions. I need people to see what I'm doing so they will accept me. And respect me and approve of me and think I'm somebody. Because if they do, then I'll feel that I'm important and I'll feel good about myself. And I'll know that I have value and worth on this planet. 
take it from a guy who lived that way for many, many years. Needing to be noticed, needing to be respected, needing to be affirmed by the right people, needing others to respond to me in, in such a way that I felt important, needing my contribution to be recognized in order to feel good about myself. That was me for many years, and it's still me when I lose sight of who I am in Jesus Christ. And when I think about that kind of living, that kind of lifestyle, here's my conclusion about it. It's slavery. It's prison. It is bondage. Think about it. If I must have your approval to feel good about myself, if I need to be respected and recognized by you or by others in order to feel good and important that I'm somebody, then I am in bondage. Isn't that true? In fact, to take it a step further, if that's what's in my heart, if I need you that much, then I'm actually making you my savior. Save me, please. You can save me from an uninteresting life or a life that doesn't matter. You can save me from a meaningless, unsatisfying life. This is how so many people live, depending upon others to rescue them from Feelings of insignificance or inferiority or insecurity or a lonely life to deliver them from the little mini hell that they've created in their own mind. They'd never say it like that. But I wonder how many people are looking to a particular person or group of people to do for them what only God can do for them in Jesus. That's a heavy burden to place on someone. You know, I got to think about this. Those of us who are married, you know, when we got married back in the day, right, and we stood at the altar with that person, outwardly we said, you know, I love you. I, I want to give my life for you. But, but isn't it true that to some extent what we were really in our heart secretly saying is, you make me happy. I sure hope you keep making me happy my whole life. Rescue me, please from a life that's unsatisfying and uninteresting and boring and lonely. Rescue me from that. Will you have this man to be your Lord and Savior? Yes. Will you have this woman to be your rescuer and deliverer? Yes. That's what I've been hoping for my whole life. You say, I didn't have that in me. Yes, you did. We all did. It's in us, is it not? We look to other people to do for us what only God has promised to do. And if marriage doesn't, didn't work, then we think about having, oh, having children. That'll do it. My children will save me from a boring, uninteresting life. Well, yeah, boring, yeah, that's true. There's some truth in that, right? <laughs> but you know, how many people thought that, well, having kids and raising them well, and I'll fix all the mistakes I did when I was growing up, or fix, you know, I'll parent differently than my parents parented me because I want to do it right, and then everybody will look at me and say, what a great parent they are, and I'll feel good about myself. You know, kids make great kids but poor saviors. Spouses make great spouses but poor saviors. That's a heavy load to put on someone to say, I need you to be my deliverer, my rescuer, my savior. I need you to be Jesus. Man. No wonder there's so much frustration in our world and dashed expectations and disappointment and disenchantment. No wonder there's so much anger. No wonder so many people are on medications and things. Because we're expecting other people to do for us what only God 
has promised and is able to do, to deliver. What Jesus was attacking here in Matthew 6 is salvation by recognition. That people can somehow save themselves from an empty, unsatisfying life by trying to extract from other people what they think they need in order to feel good about themselves, to feel important, to feel like I'm somebody and I'm secure and I matter. It's self-salvation. Man, if I could just get recognized by the right people for my, for my looks, for my appearance, for my, for my body, for my achievements, for how good my kids are, for how good of a parent I am. If people would just notice that and tell me how good I am in that area, or how good of a Christian I am, or how gifted I am, or how talented I am, then I'll be saved. Not in a theological sense, but in an existential sense. Saved from an unsatisfying life. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ hits right at the core of this because it tells those who believe it that they are loved and accepted unconditionally by the most important person in the whole universe. He chose them before the world was even created to be one of his family. Before they were ever conceived in their mother's womb, he sent his son to die in their place on a cross to reconcile them to God and redeem them from slavery to other masters. The gospel tells us that we have immense worth and value to God because he made us in his image and then he bought us with his blood. Amen? I mean, the gospel tells us... As believers, we've been sent into the world on a mission, so our lives do matter. Our lives do count. They have an impact that will last forever. You know, I spent the majority of my teenage years trying to get people to notice me, to think highly of me, to respect me as somebody important. Look at me. Look at me. I'm somebody. Tell me that. Affirm that. I mean, I played tennis in high school, and I, I, was, I was pretty decent. But I remember feeling that I wasn't getting enough press. And then I remembered, I am the press. I write for the school newspaper. And I made sure I got some press. And you say, what kind of twisted, warped person are you? I'm just the same as all of you. It's in us, isn't it? Isn't it in us? Look at me. I mean, does that go away when you turn 12? John MacArthur says, talking about the trumpets, he says, we all have our own little trumpets, our own way of getting people to notice us and attracting attention so they'll think highly of us and we'll feel good about ourselves that we're somebody. It's in all of us. I needed people to regard me highly if I was going to feel good about myself. If certain people didn't regularly send me cues that they respected me, or worse, if they said or did something that indicated that they didn't respect me, it sent me into a tailspin emotionally. That led to either depression or frantic efforts to try to get back into their good graces again. I did and said things at the time that I'm, I'm really ashamed and embarrassed about now, but at the time it made sense because I needed this so deeply. I didn't know anything else. I thought that was life. Like a fish swimming in the ocean. That's all they know. That's all I knew. I thought it was life until Jesus Christ invaded my heart. 
And I can take you to the place where I was when it hit me like a ton of bricks. That it no longer mattered to me a whole lot anymore what people thought about me because I knew what Jesus thought about me. It was freeing. I remember it dawned on me. It was, it was, it was stunning to me. I remember when I had this thought one day, Steve, it's been weeks since you cut somebody down with sarcasm. What's with that? And I realized that the need to do that, the need to elevate myself by putting other people down was gone. It's like, whoa, I didn't do that. I remember when it dawned on me that I was no longer frantically trying to get other people to notice me and notice my achievements and let them know the things I was doing and try to get them to respect me. It's like, I didn't need to do that anymore. Because Jesus was important for me. Jesus was somebody for me, so I was free to be a nobody. It was freedom. Freedom. I was no longer desperate to get people's affirmation and respect. What I discovered is that because of that, I was now free to love people for who they were because I wasn't trying to get from them or extract from them things that I needed from them. Does that make sense? Freedom. Jesus was liberating me from the prison of a self-focused life where every act towards other people was calculated to get something in return that would make me feel better about myself and feel important and feel like I mattered. I don't know if this is making any sense to you or not, but if you're a Christian here today, if you're a true believer, everything you really need, you already have in Christ. Is that written on your outline somewhere, or words to that effect? Everything. Respect, honor, security, significance, acceptance, loyalty, community, presence, all those things you've been grasping and clawing to get all your life, you already have if you're in Christ. Everything you really truly need in Christ, you already have. You are liberated from the prison of having to get noticed by other people all the time. Jesus set you free. You can stop trying to get from other people what you already have in Christ. You can take the mask off and stop pretending to be spiritual or funny or religious or cool or smart or beautiful or an expert on everything. You are loved and prized by the greatest person in the universe who died in your place and rose again to liberate you from needing false saviors who could never deliver what you really need. The great prison break has occurred, has happened. If you're in Christ, you're free from all that. Those religious hypocrites in that day were walking around doing things, even good things, calculated to get people to notice them, respect them, and praise them so that they would feel important. Their darkened hearts tainted even their good deeds so that acts that appeared to be loving on the outside actually weren't. They were anything but that. But then Jesus comes along and offers them himself. His grace. His perfect record of righteousness. To give them undeserved favor that didn't need to be earned, in fact could not be earned and so when I read this, I think, yes, this is a sermon on giving. It's a sermon on stealth giving. 
giving to meet the needs of other people in such a way that only God sees and knows what you've done, but it's also a sermon about life lived on the other side of it is finished, on the other side of done. This is how believers in Jesus, because they're in Christ, can live their lives free from those constraints of having to try to get people to notice me and accept me and like me and tell me I'm important, free from all that, I can just love and give because Jesus' love for those people has been deposited in my heart and he lives in and through me. Does that make sense? This is what life looks like that has been gripped by the gospel, a heart that's been transformed by the grace of Jesus and can now love people and serve people and give to meet their needs, not for selfish purposes, not arising from selfish motives, but out of genuine love for that person because of Christ's love for them. You see, only Jesus is the Savior. Only Jesus is the Savior. Only Jesus can deliver people from eternal damnation and hell, and only Jesus can deliver people from their fear of being alone or overlooked or unnoticed, or not respected. You see, Jesus saves in more ways than we thought. Everything you and I really need, we already have in Christ. We praised our Father earlier, didn't we? We have a Father, our glorious Father. It's so true. He's so glorious. He's made provision to give us everything we really need. Ours is to believe it, to believe the truths of the gospel again and again. You hear me talk about preaching the gospel to yourself every day, right? This is part of that because our default mode is to go back to performing and pretending in order to gain people's acceptance and approval. That's our default mode. and We need to go, no, no, no. I've been purchased by Christ. I've been bought by him. I'm his. He's changed my whole identity. I don't have to live that way anymore. In fact, the the driving force underneath all of those activities is gone. I can live in true freedom. I am liberated to love like he did. And that's the life I want. And that's the life I believe you want. And that's the life I want for you. And I believe that's the life Jesus wants for all of us. Let me ask, have you ever had thoughts like these? Man, if the cool people don't like me, then I won't feel good about myself. If people don't think I'm a great mom, then I won't feel good about myself. If that guy doesn't think I'm beautiful, drop-dead gorgeous, then I just can't feel good about myself. If I can't keep achieving new heights in my company, then people won't respect me and, and I won't feel like I'm important. And if people find out in my small group that I don't read my Bible every day and pray every day, then they're, they're going to think I'm not very spiritual, that I don't measure up, and that's going to be horrible. Oh, if I could just live up to those people's standards, then I'll be accepted. I'll be one of them. I'll fit in, and I'll feel good. If you find that you're plagued with thoughts like that, here's what I'll say. You need a new Savior. There's only one. And I find that as a Christian who has been saved, I often pray, Jesus, my Savior, keep saving me. Keep saving me. I am saved, but I need saving. How many of you would lift your hand and say, this sermon is intersecting my life somewhere in my life. It's intersecting my life. Would you lift your hands? 
many, many, many of us. And so would you bow your heads with me as we finish our time in the word this morning? And would you just pray that prayer from your heart to Jesus, Jesus, Savior, save me. Some of you maybe need to say, Jesus, save me from judgment. Save me from my sin. Save me from hell. You're the only one who can do that. You died on the cross for me. Others of you who are believers need to say, Jesus, Savior, keep saving me from myself, from believing in false saviors, from self-salvation projects, from idols. Save me. Jesus, you are the only Savior. We cannot save ourselves. I remember what it felt like when for the first time I was free from that burden of trying to get people to, to notice me so that I would feel important. What liberation there was in that. And that you opened my eyes to see people as those I could now love, truly love. Thank you, Lord. I pray that you would save people today in this room. Save them from sin, death, hell, and the grave, and Satan. And save us from false saviors and idols that we sometimes look to to save us. We love you, Lord Jesus. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen.